All right, well, good morning, y'all. He is risen. Let's celebrate once again the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, from the dead. As you know, if you've been to Machias for any length of time, um, today is both a special Sunday and not a special Sunday. Today's a special Sunday in that we give particular attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But every Sunday, we celebrate the fact that our Savior still lives today. This morning, if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to open up to John chapter 11. And we're going to be hanging out at two different tombs this morning. The first tomb was Lazarus's tomb. And the second tomb was Jesus's. And there's two tombs, but one hope. At the center of attention at both tombs is the perfect work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we get to John chapter 11, John 11 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. I'm not going to say it's my absolute favorite, but it's near the top. And I would encourage you this week, if you've not read through the entirety of John 11, to make that your assignment this week to read through the entirety of that chapter and notice how the Savior is at work in virtually every single sentence. The background to this story is that Jesus had a group of friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. And Lazarus was sick. And Mary and Martha sent for Jesus to let him know that Lazarus was sick And Jesus began his journey there, but then got sidetracked, sidetracked by another opportunity. And after going to deal with that, during that time that it had elapsed, Lazarus died. We read this starting in verse 17 of John 11. When Jesus came... He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? At the first tomb, at Lazarus' tomb, where Jesus actually is the star of the story, Jesus makes the most important statement he can make. Let's see it again. I am the resurrection And the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That is the most important statement. Because it defines the nature of Jesus, his character, and his ministry. That he came to die. And that through a simple act of faith 
in Christ. Though our physical bodies will die, our souls will live forever. We will never die. Jesus says definitively, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection isn't just some weird thing that's happening. No, it's personified in the person of Jesus Christ. I am the resurrection and I am the life. And then at Lazarus' tomb, to go along with the most important statement, he asks the most important question, which is, do you believe this? And this is really the crux of where we're at this morning. To ask ourselves, do we believe this? Hopefully this morning, you're going to see evidence that says, I have no choice but to believe this. But this is the central question to, if I can overstate it, this is the central question to your existence. Do you believe this? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he willingly went to the cross in your place for your sins. He died, was buried, and rose again on that third day, what we're celebrating this morning. And he's defeated death and sin forever. Do you believe this? Everything hinges on this. Let's keep going with the story. We'll skip ahead to verse 32 in John 11. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews would have come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. These verses, okay, well, these verses define why this chapter is one of my most favorite chapters in all of Scripture. Because we see Jesus acting in a way that we would not expect. The reigning, conquering king, the very son of God, has a range of emotions, and they all pile up. Look at how John describes it. Jesus saw her weeping. He saw her Sometimes we need to be reminded of this, that Jesus sees us. Some of us are walking around carrying unbelievable amounts of emotional, mental torment and pain. And we feel isolated and disconnected. Just know this, Jesus sees you. Jesus is described as being deeply moved in his spirit. And depending on your translation, it might say that Jesus was indignant that there is a sense of anger to a degree that Jesus was experiencing. What was Jesus deeply moved? What was he indignant about? What was it that he was even angry about? The reality of how evil has influenced this world and that evil has led to death. And Jesus is standing there at the tomb, not just of some random guy, not just a stranger, 
Not somebody who's just merely in need, but this was a friend of him. He's standing at his tomb and he is angry of what evil and sin has brought. He's greatly troubled. And then we see his description that Jesus wept. I love this picture of Jesus. Really, when you consider what's about to happen. When Jesus arrives at Lazarus' tomb, he knows full well what he's going to do. Long before Lazarus even died, Jesus knew what he was going to do. And yet he stood at the entrance of that tomb and is openly weeping over the loss of his friend. Over the reality and pain of sorrow and death. Some of us are suffering and we're wondering, does it matter? Does anybody care? Yes. At a minimum, but you can't get any greater, Jesus sees your pain. And what he's about to do to Lazarus is what provides us hope as we deal with our pain. We'll skip ahead a little bit more in verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. At Lazarus' tomb, Jesus proved that he is the resurrection and the life. Now, why start with this story? If you are somewhat skeptical about the resurrection, you have to start looking at some facts. Is what's recorded for us in John 11, is it just merely a fable, a tale, a myth, a legend that's been passed down for centuries? No. And the next few verses prove to us exactly why we know this is a true thing. And if Lazarus was resurrected by the only one who could do it, Jesus... It's a foreshadowing what Jesus will then do later on for his own resurrection. If you'd follow this story at all, the story of Jesus, you know that he had made some enemies. Now, he wasn't necessarily starting fights with them, but people were opposed to him, to his ministry, to what he was doing. And as Jesus embarked on his public ministry, it also opened up the beginning of people trying to figure out how to kill him. And so for three years, he's essentially walking around under a death sentence, knowing full well that they're trying to do what they can to rid the planet of this one who is, in their minds, creating so much trouble. And so when Jesus shows up to Lazarus' tomb... And raises him, it only ramps up their desire to kill him. But apparently it wasn't enough just to want to kill Jesus. John 12, starting verse 9. So just a few verses after where we ended. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, Jesus had moved in to begin to prepare for Passover, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. 
Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. If Lazarus was not truly resurrected from the grave by Jesus, then what in the world would they need to go and kill him for? Lazarus' resurrection became an undeniable fact that had to be reckoned with. Unfortunately, the chief priests that were involved here, they willingly ignored the very real evidence staring them in the face. And they would rather destroy the evidence than change their minds. This is how hardened they had become in their minds and their hearts. They would rather destroy the evidence. Let's kill Lazarus. They would rather do that than change their minds. They're confronted with the same question that we are. Do you believe this? And I'm convinced that in actuality, the chief priests here did believe this. Which is why they were fighting so hard against it. Wanting so much to destroy the evidence that Jesus was truly the resurrection and the life and fully capable of doing it. And Lazarus' resurrection, again, it foreshadows Jesus' resurrection. We skip ahead to John, John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You have to love kind of like the anonymous autobiography John putting here. I was faster than Peter. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, <clears throat> also went in, and he saw and believed. All the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is there in one place. Start with the first thing. The stone that was blocking the tomb was rolled away. This is a big stone. It's a stone that would have fit into a rut in order to seal off the cave that Jesus was buried in. When Mary arrives at the tomb, the other accounts of the Gospels report that she says, who's going to move this for us? It was not something that she or the other women on their own could have done. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that we know exactly how the stone got moved. There was a great earthquake and then there was an angel sitting on top of the stone, of the, of the stone in front of the tomb. But have you ever wondered why? Because there's an interesting happening that occurs to us later after Jesus appears to his disciples. The disciples are locked in a room together. And then Jesus is in 
the room with them. The door is never reported to have been opened or unlocked. Jesus was fully capable of just moving through the door. So why then, if he's capable of doing that, it seems like he'd be perfectly capable of just walking through the rock. So why move the stone? If you consider the possibility that the stone was not for Jesus to escape, but for the disciples to look in and to see what had happened. What gives us the number two? The tomb was empty. There was no one there. Now, there's all kinds of great theories that are out there to explain why the tomb was empty, and none of them hold water. Particularly when you get to this third piece we're going to get here, the grave clothes were left behind. Now, again, I appreciate John here and the way that he has reported this because he has justified my sense of OCD and hyper-cleanness. Because the way that John describes it, what does he say? The face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. There's your biblical definition for folding up your laundry and putting it away. <laughs> there are several theories about what happened to Jesus' body. One was that there was grave robbers, which was a thing during Jesus' day for sure. But explain the grave clothes. If it was Jesus' enemies that were trying to just get rid of the body just so there's nothing crazy happening, then why are the grave clothes there? If the disciples went in, somehow becoming like the super elite military squad, these guys are bumbling idiots all the way through the entirety of the gospel, so suddenly they've been able to pull it together to pull off like a major hoax? I don't think so. But even if the disciples had gone in, then why leave the grave clothes? The only reasonable explanation is that the grave clothes were left behind because Jesus was raised from the dead. He took the clothes off and he folded them up himself and set them down. The fourth piece of evidence that we have is that Jesus personally appeared. He made himself known. John 20, chapter, verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus personally appeared to Mary than to the remaining 11 disciples. The Apostle records for us that later on, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. All the evidence is there. Two tombs, one hope. Jesus is at the center of it. 
Jesus has the power, not had, past tense, has the power to raise people from the dead. And that same power is what was used by him to emerge from his own grave. Now, I recognize I shared this quote a couple of weeks ago if you were here, but I think it's worth repeating this morning. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Two tombs, one hope. Jesus is at the center. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? If you're a follower of Jesus, I pray that this reminds you of the power that's at work and of the gift that you've been given to have your sins forgiven and your place in eternity secured forever. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, know that this is the most important question you can or will ever answer. Everything hinges on this. Your eternal state hinges on how you answer this question. Do you believe this? The evidence is right there in front of you. Do you believe this? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope and the power of the resurrection of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that because he emerged from that tomb on his own, and because he walked out into newness of life, we have assurance that sin and death can and will be defeated forever. Father, I pray for those here this morning that are your followers. I pray that you would encourage them, strengthen them. Or when the enemy tries to distract them, frustrate them, depress them, I pray you would bring them back to the empty tomb and their hope would be renewed. And Father, I pray for those hearing this who are not yet your followers. I pray you'd help them to be really honest with themselves. That there is a place deep inside them that knows that they know that they know this is actually true. And I pray you give them the courage to respond to that truth. We thank you that you've made it so simple 
It's not always easy, but you made it so simple to be your follower. Your son said it. Believe in me. Father, I pray for those hearing this that are not yet your followers. I pray they would hear this and choose to believe in the risen Christ. To trust in him for their salvation, acknowledging that there is sin that they can't do anything about. That your son died in their place to take that penalty so they never would have to. We thank you for the freedom and for the forgiveness that comes because your son beat sin and death forever. We thank you for the name of Jesus, for the person of Jesus, for the work of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.